Welcome to the Pacific Spine and Pain Society podcast for residents, fellows, and new attendings. A casual conversation, like the ones had after a presentation, in the floral suite, or in the clinic, designed to give you insight about interventional spine, pain medicine, neuromodulation, regenerative medicine, and minimally invasive spine techniques. And now, here's your host, Dr. Daniel Orlovich. We are delighted to have Dr. Kazra Emmerdolphin as a guest with us today. He will be talking about spinal cord stimulation, and he is quite the expert in the field. It's a real privilege to have him. He is one of the founding partners at IPM Medical Group up in Walnut Creek, California. He received his medical degree from Texas A&M University and completed his residency at John Peter Smith Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas, which is affiliated with Southwestern School of Medicine. He completed his fellowship in interventional pain management at the Pacific Pain Treatment Center with Dr. Elliot Krames in collaboration with the CPMC in San Francisco. He's been very active. He served as the department chair of pain medicine at John Muir Medical Center and Doctors Hospital in his area. He performs extensive research and lectures various cutting-edge methods in pain management at the national as well as the international level. And he's regarded as one of the foremost global key opinion leaders in the field of interventional pain management and neuromodulation. He continues to be very actively involved in conducting research for the development of new technologies to help improve pain management worldwide. He's authored over 40 scientific peer-reviewed publications, serves as a vice president of clinical affairs, and is an executive board member of the American Society of Pain and Neuroscience. And he is also the vice president and executive board member of the Pacific Spine and Pain Society. And finally, he has a special interest in spinal diseases, spinal cord stimulation, and stem cell technologies. We're delighted to have him as our guest, and I think you'll love the episode as well. First question we will start with, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into pain management, how your setup is up there in Walnut Creek. Tell the listeners a little bit. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. It's such a pleasure to be with you and to be able to do this podcast. My name is Cass Amir Dalton. I've been practicing interventional pain management now for the past 20 years. I grew up in Texas. I did uh, undergrad and medical school at Texas A&M University and did my residency in Fort Worth, Texas. And after I finished, I came out to Northern California to do an interventional pain fellowship program with none other than Dr. Elliot Krames, the founder of the Journal of Neuromodulation, and the man a lot of people regard as the godfather of interventional pain management. And really, he gave me the kind of foundation that I needed for me to be able to do the kind of work that I do in my practice. I finished my fellowship with him exactly 20 years ago, um, and I started practicing in the East Bay, in the Bay Area. And we started with a very small practice. I joined this doctor, Dr. Jacob Rosenberg, and the two of us started in a two-exam room, three chairs in the waiting room, small office, and we slowly expanded the practice. And the practice is now 18 offices, 75 physicians. And we have over 500 employees up and down the coast of California. There's a significant number of interventional pain management physicians in our offices, but we also have orthopedic surgery and occupational medicine. Aside from that, about 15 years ago, I uh, began to do research, mainly because of the fact that I wanted to leave a positive impact on this space and on this specialty. One of the things that I started to realize very early on is that despite the fact that we were doing very good pain management already based on everything that our forefathers had done in interventional pain medicine, there was a lot to be done. Uh, we were very limited and we had a very infantile 
level of access to chronic pain patients. So I thought what better way to contribute to this space and what better way for me to have an impact on the specialty that I love so much than to do research. So we started with a couple of stem cell studies early on, and that quickly translated into bigger studies, including interventional procedures such as spinal cord stimulation. And at this point, I'm the only guy in the country who's done four out of the five pivotal randomized control trials that have been done in the United States. I just finished the Saluda study, which is a closed-loop system. I was one of the investigators for the Senza RCT for HF10 therapy with Nevro. I was one of the investigators for the Accurate study, which is the dorsal root ganglion stimulators, um, which is now owned by Abbott. And also, I was one of the investigators for the Sunburst study or the burst waveform that Abbott has at this point as well. So I'm really proud to have had that legacy. But aside from that, it's given me the kind of diversity and experience to not only treat my patients better, but to also help my colleagues along the way. I love interacting with physicians. I love learning from them. And I feel like there's so many pearls between us uh, getting exchanged back and forth that what better way to be able to help each other out than to exchange our experiences. Wow. So over, you said 500 employees, 75 physicians, 20 years of experience and, and four randomized control trials. Uh, so lots of experience is an understatement. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yes. It's been a long road. And so far, I've been an author on about 42 different publications. And I think I'm only getting started. Mm. We are now in the sweet spot of pain management, in my opinion. We've gotten away from opioid analgesics, which were never really all that useful to begin with. There was a big industry push for us to use opioid analgesics for our patients because there wasn't really anything better to do. Mm. With the advent of the CDC guidelines, with the change in the perception and the consumption of opioid analgesics, we've had this phenomenal horizon that has opened up in front of us. This is an excellent opportunity for us to be looking at minimally invasive procedures, looking at physical therapy and rehabilitation, looking at a multidisciplinary approach to our patients from a functional standpoint and a psychological standpoint and an interventional standpoint in order for us to make our patients better. So I feel like if anybody's interested, this is really the time to be in interventional pain medicine because we're just now hitting our stride with modern pain management and being able to treat our patients on a long-term basis. In fact, one of the reasons why I became so interested in spinal cord stimulation to begin with was because of the fact that at the time, 20 years ago, SCS was the only thing that had long-term evidence for it. Despite the fact that we were limited in terms of efficacy, we could basically treat leg pain, not so much back pain. There was very little data on upper extremity pain and zero data on axial neck pain. It was one of the best things out there. Dr. Kumar had done a phenomenal study looking at the efficacy of spinal cord stimulation versus conventional medical management. And if any of the audience haven't read this paper, they really should read this paper because it's one of the most highly referenced papers out there. Dr. Rick North did a study comparing spinal cord stimulation to failed back surgery syndrome and reoperation. And in both of those studies, we found that the patients have better outcomes and longer-term outcomes than they do with reoperation or conventional medical management. And that really started the attention and the interest in the, in the SES industry. And now we have several different excellent companies on the market and there are new technologies on the horizon that are coming in the near future. So 
it's a good time to be in pain management and it's even a better time to be a patient in chronic pain. Not that you would ever want chronic pain, but at least we have certain options that could potentially give the patients long-term pain relief. Nice. So it sounds like uh, new modalities are newer or maybe a resurgence, a renewed interest in it. And it sounds like lots of different areas are allowing this to happen. Walk us through kind of a typical, if you can, Kaz, a typical patient that would benefit from a spinal cord stimulator just for the residents and fellows out there, the standard traditional patient, what their presenting symptoms are, maybe what indications. I'm sure you've treated lots of them over your career. Yeah, absolutely. First and foremost, I think everyone needs to understand that there is a learning curve with every surgical skill set that you develop. I'll never forget my first spinal cord stimulator trial I did. It took me three and a half hours to to get through that trial by myself after my fellowship. And the reason for that was it was the first time ever I didn't have Dr. Krams looking over my shoulder and helping me with the nuances. And I was really nervous. Thankfully, that trial went well. The next one took a little bit less time and so on and so on. And I've been able to maximize the efficiency while keeping the patient safe with any procedure that I do. So my point is that nobody's born having the surgical skill set. As long as you practice, as long as you listen to your colleagues, as long as you get help when you need it, you will achieve the things that you want to achieve. By far, the hardest thing that you can do in spinal cord stimulation is patient selection. Mm. In my opinion, it's the one thing that really takes a skill set of being a good physician, having a good gestalt about your patient population, and knowing what evidence is at hand and what technologies can actually help each particular patient with a particular pain presentation. So all of those things really go together. So I would say the skill set that I've developed mostly that I'm proud of is my patient selection at this point. I'm incredibly conservative in the way I pick my patients. But even now, as I speak to the patients, as part of my interview of the patient and my dialogue about various different modalities, what I think about is, would this patient potentially be a spinal cord stimulator candidate? And there's several tiers to that. First of all, have they tried more conservative measures to see if it's successful? Because if conservative measures work, that's all you need to do. Have they tried exercise and physical therapy? Are they motivated? Is there psychological overlay? All of those things play a big role in a patient becoming a good candidate for SCS. Aside from that, do they have any comorbidities, for example, that you need to look at? For example, if they're morbidly obese, if they take two different anticoagulants because they have chronic atrial fibrillation, or they have a recent history of pulmonary embolus, for example, those things make the patient a better or a worse candidate for any sort of implantable technology. But at the end of the day, the thing that every single physician does in their medical school years, in their residency and fellowship years, and in their early practice is to develop the gestalt that they need to be able to get to know the patient from the heart out. You need to know whether that patient would be a good candidate or not. And believe you me, there will be failures where you think that the patient is an excellent candidate and later on you find out that that isn't. But that's okay. We all learn from our mistakes and we go on to become better physicians and better patient selectors for this. But if a patient comes into my practice and say they have a two-level fusion, and they've tried everything else, including injections before the fusion, injections after the fusion, physical therapy and exercise, medications, and they just haven't been able to get long-term pain relief. And they have a realistic outlook on what they can get out of any sort of interventional procedure or implantable technology. 
they pot potentially can become a good candidate for spinal cord stimulation. Having psychological overlay is an automatic out for me because if there's any sort of secondary gain issues, if there is magical thinking about what implantable technology can do for these patients, it is absolutely the wrong way to go for this particular patient. But if they're realistic, if they're looking somewhere between 50 to 60% pain relief with their spinal cord stimulator, for example, if they're looking at making their life better, if they actually verbalize that, look, I want pain relief because I want my function to be better. I want pain relief because I want to be able to play with my kids or go back to work part-time. All of those things really play into my patient selection. If there are no comorbidities for these patients, then I typically open a dialogue and talk to the patient about the fact that, look, you failed all the conservative measures that we could try, like epidural injections, like radiofrequency rhizotomy of the medial branches, like physical therapy and exercise, acupuncture, you name it, all of these conservative things that are potentially a possibility for treatment option for the patients. It's time for us to talk about something that could potentially give you longer-term pain control based on the evidence that we have in the scientific literature, and that's spinal cord stimulation. Uh, what I typically do is that I tell the patients, look, this is nothing new. It's been around for over 50 years at this point. And the only reason you may not have heard about it at this point is because of the fact that we typically reserve these types of therapies for patients who fail more conservative measures. But it's nothing too invasive. In fact, it's one of the least invasive procedures that you can have in spine surgery. So the way spinal cord stimulations work is that they send electrical impulses to the spinal cord, which will in turn mask the pain signal from going to the brain. And that in and of itself can potentially give you significant pain relief. There is a significant amount of scientific evidence within our peer-reviewed literature that shows that there are certain brands and certain technologies that can potentially work on a long-term basis for you. In fact, nowadays, we have two-year data on patients just like you that show that we can not only alleviate your leg pain, but we can also help your back pain. So this sort of dialogue educates the patient in a very simplistic manner and gets them interested in it. And then I start to talk about the fact that they don't really have to take my word for it, and they can potentially have a trial to see how they do. So I just talk to them. The best part about this technology is that you don't have to just go into it blindly. You can have a trial, and the trial is very similar to an epidural injection that you've had. We take you to the operating room. We give you a small amount of IV sedation. You'll be awake. We'll put some numbing medicine in. We'll put a couple of needles in, and we'll put the leads through the needles into the epidural space. We'll take the needles out, put a dressing on your back, and bring the wires around and connect it to an outside generator that you will wear around your waist, and you will use the device for five to six days, maybe eight days maximum, for you to actually try it and see how you do. And you and only you will be able to tell your physician if this was a successful trial for you. If it's successful, fantastic. At the end of it, we'll pull the leads and we can talk about the implant. If it's not successful, then we can pull the leads and you know think up other things to do or go back to conservative measures. So you really have not much to lose with this. The permanent implant is also just as simple. It, it requires subcutaneous surgery. The trials take about 15 minutes to do. The implants take about 30 minutes to do. And the permanent implant is typically good for about 10 years at a time with any technology out there. And every 10 years or so, we just have to come back in and replace the battery. This is, of course, for the case of rechargeable batteries and not primary cell batteries. So I personally think that primary cell batteries should be reserved for patients who have trouble charging or the elderly patient with a shorter life expectancy. 
And I get them interested in it. And then I let them ask the questions that they need to ask. And if they don't ask this very specific question, I usually bring it up after we've gone through the digestion of the amount of information that I've provided them in a 10-minute repartee in the exam room. If they don't ask this question, I'd usually say, you know, a lot of patients like to know what the trial to permanent ratio is. How many patients who actually try the device go in and get the permanent implant afterward? And if they haven't asked that question, they usually pick up and go, oh, yeah, I'd like to know that. I was like, well, it's, it's variable with different studies and it's variable with different physicians. But in my patient population and in the way that I pick it, my trial to permanent ratio is somewhere between 85 to 90 percent. Basically, what you can say is that about eight to nine out of 10 go ahead and get the permanent implant. So the number is quite high. But you have to keep a realistic expectation of what this can do for you. This is not going to cure your pain. If it was a cure, I would have given it to you on the first day that you walked into my office and would have a line going around the block (laughs) to have this procedure done. But that's not the case. What we can do is alleviate your pain somewhere between 50 to 75% based on the evidence that we have in the peer-reviewed literature and in my clinical experience as well. And if we can do that, then we can potentially improve your quality of life. We can potentially give you more function reduce your medicines, and get you back to doing some of the things that you like to do. If there was anything more conservative, I would have offered it to you by now. But I can assure you that as procedures go, this is a very, very, very conservative and minor procedure. In fact, the side effect rate is quite low. You know, the infection rate is less than 1% nowadays based on the peer-reviewed literature and especially in my practice. But there are some things that you need to know. We're putting needles and leads next to the spinal cord, so you run the risk of having nerve root damage and spinal cord damage. But that is even lower than the infection rate. So it is by far one of the safest things we can do in minimally invasive spine surgery in order for us to be able to give you long-term pain relief. Typically, this dialogue gets the patients interested. Sometimes they're already educated, you know, and they come in knowing exactly what they want, where they want to go with it. If they haven't thought about it, I give them a brochure. I tell them to go home and think about it. There's no rush. We can do this today or we can do it three months from now. So there's no pressure. And if they decide that they don't want to do it, that's okay too. But there's really not much else I can offer you. And then they go home, they read the brochure, they go to websites and you know read the patient information on SCS. And they typically come back with some questions, sometimes with family members, for us to be able to discuss things. I want the patient to have the reassurance. I want the patient to have the understanding that this would be something that I would do for my own mother. This would be something that I would do for my own family member. So I'm not offering the patient anything that's not good enough for my family. When they have that, they have that level of comfort and trust in you. That's when they proceed and they come in and they allow you to put needles inside their spine and implant leads and generators subcutaneously for them in order for them to get long-term pain relief. Now, Dan, make no mistake about it. So this is a really, really big point that a lot of people forget. A significant portion of whatever any type of implantable technology does is the level of education, the level of foundation, and the level of trust that the patient has developed with their physician and with their healthcare provider before they have that procedure done. There's a lot of physicians out there who have far higher failure rates. They have far higher explant rates with the same technologies. And frankly, I can't help but to think about the fact that maybe they're not taking these steps early on in order to ensure that the patients will be successful on a long-term basis. 
communication is key, just like with everything else. Communication is key. Mm. So I, I really believe in that. That was great. That was really informative. You said patient selection is really important and the key. Obviously, you know, someone can go to a physical therapy session once or try a medication, take two tablets once. At what point do you say, hey, that was a trial in earnest or hey, let's go ahead and, and try these other modalities first? Yeah, good question. So first of all, if the patients only try physical therapy once, they tend to be non-compliant. If that's the case, that's a bit of a negative mark for me. So they would become less of a candidate that would move down on the totem pole for SCS. But if they try physical therapy three or four times and their pain has increased and they don't feel like they can do it, they're having transportation issues, they're having family issues, that's a different story. I don't chalk that up to being an unmotivated patient. I listen to what they have to say about these things before they get there. I consider the comorbidities. I want to make sure that they can come off their anticoagulants, for example, in order for them to be able to do this. I want to make sure that their hemoglobin A1C is less than 8 so I can reduce the risk of infection. Although we just did this painful diabetic neuropathy study with Nebro, and I was one of the investigators in that study, and we used the cutoff of hemoglobin A1C of 9, and the infection rate was actually less than the infection rates reported in the evidence. So it just goes to show that the skill set matters. And even in diabetic patients, we can be a bit more assertive in treating them. And the outcomes were spectacular, by the way, as well. I think Dr. Erica Peterson is the primary investigator of that study, and she presented primary endpoint data at NANS this past year. So we're really looking forward to seeing the long-term results. But the comorbidities are really important. If the patient is incredibly obese, especially for residents and fellows out there, when you come out, you don't want your first patient to be a 350-pound COPD diabetic patient. Those patients are more difficult. There's a bit more of a skill set that you need to develop to be able to do a better dissection and a better implantation on those patients. Those patients should be reserved for later on. You should start with some average weight, normal patients in order for you to be able to develop the skill set that you need for you to be able to do the more difficult and more challenging implants in the long run. And don't be afraid to ask for help. I'll be the first to admit that one of the smartest things I ever did when I started my practice, and I didn't even know that this was a smart thing, by the way, it just so happens that I was at the hospital seeing a patient and I ran into the busiest spine surgeons in the hospital that I wanted his referrals a little bit, but moreover, I really needed to know how he operated and how he thought because I came from a spine pain management fellowship, but we really hadn't worked with spine surgeons that closely. So uh, I went up to him and I asked him if I could assist him on a few cases, mainly because of the fact that I wanted to see the anatomy and I wanted to learn how he thinks. And he said, sure, you know, you can come in and assist me on a few cases. So I started to assist him on a few cases and it got to the point that he would call me on the weekends and he would say, Cass, I've got a cervical trauma. You want to come in with me? I was like, absolutely. I would meet him in the hospital. He would put the MRIs up. He would explain to me exactly what was going on and what he's going to do. And we would get a double-headed microscope and I would assist him on every single case uh, to the point that he would leave his PA in the clinic to see patients, and I became his regular assistant for a few months. And that gave me the skill set that I needed in order for me to be able to see what's happening in the spine visually instead of using fluoroscopic guidance. Mm -hmm. I gained a lot of surgical skills from him, and I became a better doctor because I learned how the spine surgeons think. And until the day he retired, he was referring most of his patients to me, which was awesome. But I didn't even know, I didn't do it for that purpose. I did it for the, for the surgical anatomy lesson. 
I also did the same thing with a plastic surgeon. When I first started, I wanted to make sure that I was making the right pockets. I wanted to make sure that I could control bleeding really well. I wanted to make sure that I could reduce my infection rate. So I went up to one of my favorite plastic surgeons and I asked him if I could operate with him. And I did the same thing with him for, for a few cases. And I asked him to come in and assist me on a couple of cases. And, you know, I bought him a bottle of wine and I took him out to dinner one time. And it was fantastic because it really catapulted me into a completely different echelon. But it didn't stop there. Cadaver labs, working with other doctors, doing peer-to-peers, talking to different physicians in different practices in order for them to teach me how they do things has helped me become a better physician. But I'm still learning. I still feel like on a scale of one to 10, over the past 20 years, I've gotten to a seven. So there's three more points that I can still get to. But all of that is incredibly important for everyone to be able to do. But your patient needs to basically have all these check marks. They have tried and failed conservative measures, and they have actually tried conservative measures. They don't have psychological overlay. They don't have comorbid factors. And if all of those check marks have been checked, then you could potentially engage them and move forward with a spinal cord stimulator trial mm. if the patient is willing. And a trial is fairly simple for me at this point, but I know that it's quite challenging for the fellows and the residents when they get started. But it's repetition, mm. just like everything else in medicine. And if you do it consistently and use the same method every time, you can become as good as anybody else out there. I basically go in at T12L1 for my uh, implants in a typical patient. Uh, I basically go to the pedicle at the level below. I start medially. I make a skin wheel with local anesthetics, some 1% lidocaine. Then I use a 22 gauge, three and a half inch spinal needle, go down to the periosteum of the lamina, and uh, I localize the entire track as I pull the needle out. That 22 gauge, three and a half inch spinal needle just not only allows me to find a track, but it numbs up the entire area to the point that the patients really don't feel any sharpness when you put the 14-gauge needles in. Mm. I typically go in ipsilateral with both needles. Both needles are adjacent to each other, medial to the pedicle below, and go to the midline at the epidural space. Once the needles are in place, I push the leads up, make sure that they're in the right place. If they're paresthesia-based devices, then obviously we need to do paresthesia mapping. If they're paresthesia-free devices, it's a location placement. And you get a lateral to make sure that your leads are dorsal and you're done. And the needles come out. I typically put a chest tube tie around the two leads with O-silk suture and put relief loops over the skin. And I dress it with some tegaderm and Medipore tape. That dressing needs to be able to last for at a minimum five days. And there's an instruction sheet that I give the patients that basically says, continue with all your medicines. Don't stop any pain medicines at all. Make sure that you do some of the activities of daily living that you like to do in order to be able to see if your pain control is any better. Keep the dressing dry and intact. If you need to shower, shower in the front. Don't get the dressing wet. And if I felt like I needed to give the patient antibiotics, and that depends on the risk factor with the patient, then I tell them to stay compliant with their antibiotics throughout their trial as well. Nice. You walked us through kind of the patient selection. Any common mistakes from a technique standpoint for beginners out there? Yeah, so I'll tell you a quick story. And this was something that I did early on, maybe four years into my practice when I had just hit my stride with SCS and I felt like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> Although I have to say, now looking back, I was quite ignorant and because now I know what I don't know and I just need to continue to learn. But I met the patient. The patient had tried all kinds of conservative measures. 
the patient had had a three-level fusion. I talked to the patient for quite some time, and she was willing to try it. She said, the sooner the better. So we requested authorization. We got authorization on the patient, took the patient to the operating room. And that was the first time that I actually saw the patient's thoracic spine. I had examined the patient, but I only examined the patient in her lower back. And she had had laminectomies and uh, Harrington rod placements throughout her entire thoracic spine. And the reason she had had that was because of the childhood scoliosis that she had had. And she had this massive surgery in that area. And there was really no place for me to not only do an epidural entry, there was no place for me to actually drive the lead. So we had gone through this entire process and gotten the patient's hopes up. And I couldn't do the procedure. We had to cancel the procedure and the patient was incredibly disappointed and I was disappointed in myself. And that was a great lesson that you really need to do a good physical examination on the patient. You really need to look at their back to make sure that their spine is not manipulated in the thoracic spine if that's where you're going or in the cervical spine in the posterior manner if you're doing cervical lead placements for upper limping. Mm. So that's a big lesson. So a physical examination is an incredible part of this whole thing in terms of patient selection. Nice. Any uh, parting words for the trainees, the beginners out there, any fundamental concepts? Obviously, you brought up a few, you know, physical examination, continual learning, staying up to date on the literature, picking the right patients. Any other parting words of wisdom for the listeners out there? Absolutely. So 20 years of doing this, I've learned that I can never be an island. And nowadays, I have the honor and the privilege of being an instructor in many cadaver labs and different professional courses. But I take the time to walk around every lab to see how other doctors do things because I've learned more in the past decade than I did in the first decade of my career by learning from physicians. No doctor is an island. Just remember that. You need to be able to collaborate. You need to be able to learn and stay open. If you ever have an opportunity to go in and operate with anybody else, jump on it. No matter how good you are, you always have the opportunity to get better as well. And I continue to do this on a regular basis. It's very important. Another pearl that I think is very important, and I've seen people make this mistake, if you schedule a patient and a patient shows up for the trial or the permanent implant, and for example, they've forgotten to stop their aspirin or they drank or ate something before the procedure. If you need to postpone the procedure, go ahead and do so. If it doesn't feel right, it is not okay for you to take the patient in and operate on that patient, mainly because of the fact that this is an elective procedure. It will be no less effective if you come back and do it a week from then or two weeks from then. So don't be afraid to cancel the patients before an operating room schedule if there's a reason for you to do so. I think that's a very important lesson that people need to learn because it's better safe than sorry. If it was your mother, if it was your brother, if it was you on the table, you would want all the risks to be mitigated as much as possible for the case to go smooth and for the case to be perfect every single time. Definitely. Thank you so much for your time once again. Uh, if people want to follow up with you, you said, you know, it'd be nice to stand alongside of someone, nice to pick their brain. How can they get a hold of you and kind of pick your brain and continue this conversation? Absolutely, Dan. I've been in Northern California for a really long time. My practice is in Walnut Creek, and the surgery center that I operate out of is in Concord, which is about two miles away from my office. My operating room is open to any physician, any peer, or any colleague who wants to come in and operate with me or wants to come and see how I do things. I'm more than happy to host you 
at our surgery center at our office for you to be able to see how I do things. And aside from that, I'm always open to any questions, any thoughts, anything that you want to run by me. The best way to get a hold of me is via email. And my email is kamirdelfin at ipmdoctors.com, K-A-M-I-R-D-E-L-F-A-N at ipmdoctors.com. And I'm happy to answer any email that I get from my colleagues. So like I said, I've learned from a lot of people doing this. It's my turn to give back. And hopefully someday I can come to your operating room and see how you do things and learn from you as well. And you could watch me. It'll, it'll probably take me more than three and a half hours for my first trial. So, so no judging, please. <laughs> <laughs> no judging at all. Believe me, we've all been there. You know, that's one thing I tell the fellows. You know, it's like, you don't need to be fast. You just need to be perfect. When doctors start early, one of the things that I always tell them is that, look, if you're nervous about doing a trial, if you're nervous about doing a permanent implant, put it at the end of the day. Yeah. And give yourself plenty of time. If you feel like it's going to take you an hour and a half to do it, give yourself three hours. So what if you finish early? That's okay. Then you can have some coffee, dictate it, get some charts done, but give yourself enough time for you to do it perfect. If you do it perfect and consistent every time, then you'll get faster and faster as you gain more experience. How do I get into research? How do I expand my practice? And how do I develop my skill set? So we covered the skill set stuff pretty well. Developing the practice, really, I don't, I don't have big pearls on that because it's just a matter of having the business acumen for you to be able to do that. But the research is just one of those things that comes up too. But I think it's phenomenal. The way you guys do it, this is the way to do it. This would be the kind of podcast that I would listen to as well, you know, to be able to learn from other people. And this is great. Like you said, we jump on every opportunity we have to see other people's techniques and work alongside of them. And been very gracious with your time and your insight and your expertise so guys we thank you so much for joining us today in the psps podcast and we really appreciate it it's my pleasure thank you for having me thank you for listening we want to continue this engagement please visit the psps website join the email newsletter watch the webinars or attend the conference 